What's going on, guys? Welcome to Looking Ahead to Beto Days. I'm your host, Chris. Um, this week's episode is... I'm actually really proud of this one. Um, we we put in some work, and I actually I learned a lot. Um, I think that's my favorite part about doing this podcast, is it, it, uh, it takes me out of my comfort zone a little bit, and it's forced me to learn about things that I didn't have much information or know anything about before. And this week's episode focuses on the opioid epidemic. Um, or the drug crisis, as our, our our guest refers to it, who we'll get to um, a little bit later in the show. But before then, let's get into Beto news. Um, so last week, Beto made the far right and conservative Republicans um, collectively clutch their pearls. And I'm going to share the quote with you first, and then I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a little bit of background and history here. I know this from my home state, Texas places that formed the Confederacy, that this country was founded on white supremacy. And every single institution and structure that we have in this country still still reflects the legacy of slavery and segregation and Jim Crow and suppression even in our democracy. Um, Fun fact, all of that is true. Every single word of it. Um, I mean, you don't even have to go past the Georgia election to see that, um, you know, segregation all of that stuff is still very very much alive today but what really got um the conservatives and the far right really really pissed off was that he said that this country was founded on white supremacy fun fact spoiler alert whatever you want to say Beto is right 100 percent, he is correct and i'm gonna i'm gonna give you a little background to this so Everybody believes that the United States began on July 4th 1776 that that's the birthday Independence Day. It's not. It's not necessarily a birthday. It's actually not even when our country really, truly began because the colonists or Americans hadn't even won the war yet. The war doesn't end until 1783. Um, at that point, the French hadn't even jumped in yet because Battle of Saratoga hadn't happened. So what happens is, if if the colonists lose, every man who signed that document is hung as a traitor, and there's still a British colony. And that's not to take anything away. It takes real balls to put your your name on something like the Declaration of Independence. It's a bold move, but it's not really where our country that we know it today begins. So let's fast forward a little bit to 1783, like I said, and the signing of the Treaty of Paris and, you know, the subsequent, um, like, the observance of it or whatever in 1784. Well, the thing with the Treaty of Paris is part of it is uh, called – it's Article 7 – Article 7 um, refers to um, the to bring Britain, England, returning all of the property of the Americans. Uh, that includes slaves, and it is in fact specifically mentioned as slaves. So they were being returned as property. And I've seen this actual document. It's in the American um, Revolutionary War Museum in Yorktown, Virginia. Um, you can go and see it yourself. It is there, and that is that is fact. So, you know, if you're trying not to start a country on white supremacy, uh, not a good look, not a good start. Um, but 
after the treaty, we went into a government known as uh, the the Articles of Confederation, which was an extremely, extremely poor um, document. It basically made the country into a confederation of different countries that really didn't want to work with each other all that much. And that sticks until Shea's Rebellion. Daniel Shea re- leads a rebellion of um, former um, Revolutionary War soldiers. They're veterans. They're heroes. They basically, wa- I mean, they 100% won the independence of the United States, but they weren't getting paid. So they go to the government and they're like, hey, why don't you guys pay us? We want money for the service that we, we did. And the government looks at him and says, I'm sorry, we can't. We don't have money. We don't have the power to tax or pretty much do anything. Well, that's when they decide to throw out the Articles of Confederation and they write the U.S. Constitution, the U.S. Constitution that our government is based upon today that you hear people quote when they want to try to make a point when it suits their purpose. So within the U.S. Constitution, there's something called the Three-Fifths Compromise. The Three-Fifths Compromise is introduced by a Pennsylvanian. At the time, the Northerners needed the Southerners to create this country. So they were kind of had this back and forth going with a lot of different things. You know, you have the Great Compromise that comes from the New Jersey uh, plan and the Virginia plan. Well, there's this other plan, this other compromise that doesn't get talked about as much. The Southerners wanted to um, count every single slave as part of their population so they had more representation in Congress, which is mind-boggling considering they saw them as property, but when it was convenient for them, they wanted them to be part of the citizenry, right? So they come up with this plan called the Three-Fifths Compromise. The Three-Fifths Compromise says that either three out of every five slaves is counted in the population, or another way, three-fifths of a slave is a person, right? So very that is the very definition of white supremacy at the very outset of this country we had people in this country who were only considered three-fifths of a person under the power of you know the of white people right that's that's white supremacy like you're already putting them down it's in the like the jump off from the jump off point like i mean seriously yeah he's he's not wrong he's 100 percent right and if you think he's wrong you should open up a history book and actually read it. There are more than just pictures. Um, which leads me to my next point. So um, Beto did a little bit of genealogy work and ancestry work and all that good stuff. And he and his wife, Amy, found out that they were descendants of slaves. I'm sorry, I, I mean uh, slave owners. Right. And how he handled that is completely unique to him and is a very Beto thing to do. He wrote this long blog and talked about, you know, where he came from, finding out about um, having slave owners in his family and how they had built their wealth on the backs of others. And he started talking about what he's going to do to make up for that. That's a conversation that needs to be had in this country. We, we, we've never fully dealt with our history. We've just always said, you know, that's not me. But we never think, well, you know, let's go ahead and right the wrongs by doing better by the people who live here. You know, I'm the descendant of card-carrying KKK members. I tell my students in class all the time, that's not me. That's not who I am. They do not define me. I define me, and I'm going to define me by righting the wrongs that they brought before me. I will fix and help fix everything that they've tried to tear down. 
And that's kind of how I felt that he handled that. And that's unique. I've never heard of a politician doing that. Like, I've never seen a politician do that. It's just, it's, it's, it's good stuff. Um, and uh, the other big thing that uh, has happened in the last week was Beto released his Q2 numbers, his quarter two financial numbers. Uh, it was $3.6 million raised, almost 200,000 people who, or individuals who donated, hundred. it was around 190,000 really. Um, which is just mind-blowing. That's a lot of people. And you have to also remember that that is not PAC money. He takes not a dime from PACs. He doesn't hold $2,000 a plate fundraiser. He doesn't charge you $500 for a for a selfie. He will wait in the rain until every person has gotten a selfie or a picture or something before he leaves. You know, it's... He's running a true-to-form grassroots campaign, and for him to raise $3.6 million is kind of a big deal. I know it's a drop-off from the $9.4 million he did in the first 18 days, but he's still competitive. He's still qualified for the next three debates, both fall debates, including the July debate that's coming up in the next couple of weeks. And, like, CNN wants to dog him for it. I mean, seriously? Like, they said he had a bad week, like... Q2, low Q2 numbers cap off bad week for better or I want that kind of bad week like that's the kind of bad week I want like I want to be nationally recognized for being somebody with morals and scruples and you know not an asshole so that's just me but I know it's just it's crazy that the media is going out of their way to really dog him when he's doing such great things like he was literally feeding the hungry at a migrant, at like he was feeding the hungry, like there were these were migrant workers who would come in, and he was helping feed them at, at like a soup kitchen. Who else have you seen there? I haven't seen any any other candidate do anything remotely like that. And that's going to bring us into the discussion for the day. And before we get into the discussion, I'm going to kind of put a little bit of a misnomer on here, and you know, I guess like not necessarily a misnomer, but you know, a warning. Um, we had some technical difficulties recording. You know, I did work as much editing magic as I could. Um, I know it sounds it's going to sound like it cuts off just a little bit. It's kind of where the conversation ended anyways. Um, but our guest is going to come on, um, and he's going to start our segment off with uh, Why Beto. So on last week's show, I started something called Why Beto, um, where I was gonna, I'm going to have guests come on, and they're going to explain, kind of put out their Why Beto. Why do they support Beto? And um, to do that this week, I'm going to bring on my guest early. So I'd like to introduce Tim Alexander. Hey, how's it going, Chris? It's going pretty good. Um, so why Beto? Why why do you why do you support what Beto is doing? Well, um, for me, that's pretty simple. Um, first and foremost, uh, I, I believe that the current president and the White House now, uh, you know. The things that he displays as a human being is pretty much against everything morally that I feel that I stand for as a person. Um, and when I see and hear Beto O'Rourke speak, I can feel it. I can tell that he is coming from a place of passion from inside his heart. And as a person in long-term recovery, uh, it's extremely important for me to be able to connect with the person that I want to vote for. You know, um, Beto, uh, the first time I heard him speak, uh, and probably a lot of people, was 
at a town hall meeting when he was speaking about the NFL and the kneeling. And the way he came across and treated the person that asked him the question with respect, although he disagreed with them, uh, was monumental to me. It touched home, and I appreciated that, you know, 1,000%. I see him continuously work on a daily basis his butt off. And no other candidate in the field right now is doing that. Uh, And that's important to me. He holds more town halls than anybody else. And I pay attention to his body language when people are speaking to him. And he is intent on listening and hanging to every word. I love the fact that he has a notepad and he's taking notes. I mean, these are things that you just don't see out of a politician. And, And you cannot help but to admire the work, work ethic, the heart, and the courage that it takes to do this day in and day out. And that, you know, that's why I support Better Award. Yeah, now I, I know a lot of people and a lot of people outside of Texas. That's how we were introduced to Beto was that uh, was that NFL video. Because I, I mean, I that for me, that was the first time I saw him. And it really opened my eyes to like, him as a person and you're right taking notes being intent on listening is a huge and important part um i i've it's i mean it really just shows about a lot about who he is as a person so we're gonna we're gonna go right on um into our discussion for the day and that revolves around um this would would be the 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 drug crisis that we have in uh, this country, which is sometimes referred to as the opioid epidemic, but from having done a little bit of research and some of the stuff that Tim has sent me, I've learned that it's way more complex than that. So, um, Tim, you want to you want to you want to kind of fill in the listeners about who you are, tell your story a little bit. Oh, sure, no problem. So, my name's Tim Alexander, person in long-term recovery from substance use disorder. Uh, What that means is I haven't found it necessary to use a mind or mood altering substance for two and a half years now. Um, I was an addict for 25 years. I'm 41 now, so uh, you do the math. I started out pretty early uh, with marijuana and alcohol. But, you know, through the process of recovery, what you come to find out about yourself is that The traits of an addict are there far uh, and long before you pick up that first drug. Uh, And for me, it was that disconnection uh, and a dysfunctional family life with, you know, my mom, uh, who was a pill popper, and my dad was an alcoholic. He wasn't home much. Uh, I was always vying for that attention and that connection uh, with another human being. And and those human beings were the people, you know, that are supposed to love you the most in life. Um, You know, so experiencing that at an early age, uh, what ended up happening is I would seek attention in other ways. I would act out in different behaviors seeking attention from my father, whether it was good or bad, it didn't matter. I just wanted some 
form of connection with people that love me. So what it ended up happening, uh, I, it was difficult. It was extremely difficult to make friends with other people. Uh, the trust just wasn't there. Like I was saying a little while ago, you know, if the people that you think that are supposed to love you the most, you're not feeling that connection there and you feel hurt with what connection you do have to them. And, you know, when you try to make friends, you know, I did everything in my power to keep them at arm's length. I never really, you know, told people what I was thinking, what I was feeling. Uh, I would, you know, wear various masks. You know, it didn't matter which crowd it was. That's the way I acted, whether they listened to hip hop or country. That's what I did in that day to fit in. So I never felt like I was truly myself. Uh, not until, you know, that fateful day when I was 14 and I picked up that first beer, you know? Mm -hmm. And yeah, when you take that, that first drink of a beer at that early of an age and you feel that warmth, you know, feels like it's pulsing through your blood and it loosens you up and it makes you feel good and it makes you feel strong and have courage. And uh, I felt in that moment that I was able to be me. But what I didn't understand is what it was creating inside of me and inside of my spirit. Um, you know, so I, like a lot of people that have substance use disorder, you know, I tried marijuana, moved on into some, did a little bit of LSD, um, did some ecstasy, uh, stayed away from things like cocaine and heroin. Because, uh, you know, growing up, I loved playing baseball and stuff and basketball and football. And to me, those were the hard drugs. That meant you were a drug addict if you did that stuff, you know what I mean? So, yeah. And, um, you know, so that carried on, you know, I would reach, you know, reach out to people, uh, in various ways. Like I said, I, I got kicked out of school when I was 16, uh, and I didn't go back. I did end up getting my GED, uh, about a year and a half later, uh, you know, I had multiple suicide attempts. And I think that it was more of a cry for help at first, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a serious attempt when I was 22 years old. And my grandmother had passed away. And I remember uh, taking about 19, 10 milligram values. I drank a couple 40 ounces of beer. And I was at my aunt's house. And for whatever reason, we were arguing, you know, my entire family was there, Chris. And, you know, my aunt said, it should have been you. Jesus. And when she said that, you know, and this is just what's told to me, because <laughs> after taking that much stuff and, and drinking that beer on top of it, I really don't remember much. But mm -hmm. they said I walked into the kitchen. I grabbed a knife in front of everybody and I cut my wrist to the bone. Uh, so that, you know, my left hand has kind of been like, you know, hasn't functioned, you know, fully since that yeah. day. But, you know, uh, 
you know, the, the crazy part about it is, is that I was always crying out for help. I was crying out for connection uh, with other people, you know, and I see that a lot today in society, right? Um, mm -hmm. Unfortunately. So, it, you know, we can almost even go further than the addiction crisis and call it a social crisis once you start including, you know, the suicide rates, the, yep. the substance abuse. And, um, Mental health in this country is, is completely overlooked uh, a thousand percent. Uh, we like to blame everything else. We don't want to think it's a it's a um, um, there's an actual mental imbalance or anything like that. And that should include, you know, substance abuse, which should 100 percent be treated like a, a as as a kind of like a mental disorder, because, you know, it, it's it, it is such a shun thing in our society. Um, and, yeah. and people look down on people who use drugs as opposed to seeing somebody who who needs help, just like you said. Um, but before, before we, we move on, I, I want you to finish telling your story because I want you to tell everybody and all the listeners what you do now, because oh, yeah, what yeah. you do now is, I mean, you've come a long way, man. I, I, I've, I think we've been talking back and forth for like a, a week and I'm just, it's, it's really amazing. Yeah. I, I've been truly blessed. Um, you know, I, like I was saying, I didn't get into the hard drugs because, uh, the disease, of addiction, it's progressive in nature. So over time, those same drugs that you're using, the alcohol and the marijuana, they just don't quite work the same anymore. So, you know, I started getting into some cocaine pretty hard. Um, still was terrified to try um, heroin and mm -hmm. definitely didn't want to use any needles or anything like that. Um, I was an addict with morals, Chris. I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, man, you gotta you gotta draw the line somewhere, I guess. I yeah, don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they, you know, after starting to use cocaine, you get into a different element um, of street life, and you know, you start thinking about doing things that just don't sit right with who you are as a human being because you know i really feel uh as i reflect on my life that the moral compass doesn't want you to go that way so when it comes to stealing or doing anything of that nature in order to get the substance um you have to take another substance like alcohol, for instance, to drink first in order to do that because it just doesn't sit right. At least it didn't with me. <laughs> so what I, uh, I was 24 years old, ended up uh, getting jumped by five guys at the hotel room and fractured three vertebrae in my back. And the doctor put me on Percocet and... Then they put me on Percocet and Oxycontin. And, you know, at that point in my life, I was already an addict. So um, the Percocet and Oxycontin, of course, I abused. Once I felt the way I did after taking it, which was kind of like that very first time you, you, you drink that beer and you get that warm feeling I was talking about. Mm -hmm. It's it's very similar with heroin. And, and when you feel all the pain in your body melt away, 
but also all your emotions, uh, it becomes easy, right? If you don't have coping skills to be able to, to maneuver through life, it's like, okay, my girlfriend pissed me off. I'm getting high. Uh, you know, today was an amazing day. I'm getting high, you know? Oh, let's celebrate, you know? Mm -hmm. It's July 4th. Let's get high. You know, I, I began to find any excuse uh, to get high and to use drugs, which ended up leading me into, you know, jail, which I've been to more times than I care to even think about. And that's the God's honest truth. Mm -hmm. uh, when I sit down and I try to think about all the times that I have been locked up or incarcerated, um, I can't come up with an accurate number as far as jail. I've been to prison twice. Um, I've been in numerous programs too. You know, they put, you know how they have those jail programs. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I always did really well while incarcerated. I was a good person. I worked 99% of the time. You know, for free. Uh, I worked out. I read. I uh, I wrote. I drew. I, I just did whatever I could, you know, to keep my mind sharp and to feel good about myself. But the second you hit that door and there's no continuum of care, which basically is like, okay, you're an addict. You've been in this program for six months. You should be fine now. We're going to release you back into the environment from which you came and good luck. Man, it's it, just like anything else. You need, you need continual care. That's, that's at least one thing as somebody who's an outsider um, or who doesn't have much experience, you know, it's, it, it's, is, is it being some a, a mental illness? It's something that needs to be nurtured and cared. The one thing that was consistent across everything that I've read and doing research was, it's got to be continually treated. It doesn't just end. It's not, there is no cure. No, recovery uh, is a lifelong process. Um, it, it most definitely is. And um, I will get into the continuum of care once I, I'm just going to touch briefly on this heroin part. Um, mm -hmm. I was 26 years old uh, when I first tried heroin. Uh, I had run out of medication. A friend of mine had some um, heroin, and you know he offered it to me. And he sold me that tale that it's exactly like painkillers, and uh, I spent twenty bucks. And you know he was absolutely right. It was actually better. It was stronger. Mm -hmm. So I, I really thought I was winning then, and. Uh, 14 years later, like I said, you know, uh, over 54 felony charges, uh, 13 convictions on my record, I found myself sitting in Chesterfield County Jail. And I was facing six new felonies with 10 on my record at that point. Um, I had a violation in, in Rica. So this was a multi-jurisdictional thing. It was Hanover, Chesterfield, and Henrika. 
and somehow I I had to try to coordinate getting help with my record and instead of being incarcerated the whole time. Um, so I wrote a letter, you know, to Hamrico County Drug Court and somebody came and evaluated me. They understood I had other charges and if my acceptance was pending whether or not Chesterfield County or Hanover uh, would let me do the drug court program. And if you looked at, like, you know, Virginia does sentencing guidelines. So if you look at my sentencing guidelines would tell you that I was looking at a minimum of probably, you know, four or five years with a max of about seven or eight. And, and already being to prison twice, you know, a judge probably would have had no problem doing that. Um, you know, but when I sat in jail this time, Chris, that I... I got down on my knees and I had done this before, you know, and I don't know if I meant it even more this time, but like, you know, I was looking back at my life. I had an 11 year old daughter at that point. Um, well, she was getting ready to turn 11, but, and I had spent one year of her life with her, you know? So, mm -hmm the people that are affected by this were, you know, it, it's, it wasn't just about me anymore. There was things in my life that I started to want to feel present for, uh, especially almost being 40 years old. I mean, as you can imagine, 40 years old, uh, you know, without a pot to piss in or wanted to throw it out of, man, that's, uh, that's a tough to swallow. It yeah, is. It does. So, so, you know, I got very, very, very lucky and drug court accepted me. Um, both of my lawyers from Hanover and Chesterfield worked together and they got me into the drug court program. Uh, you know, and what is what exactly is that program? What is the drug court program? Okay, so like Hamrico County Drug Court set up to where you're in different phases. Mm -hmm. um, they have five phases now. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was in, they had four. Um, so with like in first phase, you're gonna do three uh, NAAA meetings a week. You're gonna do two groups a week with uh, a clinician from the drug court team. And then you're going to go to court every Friday and you're on intensive uh, urinalysis screening. Uh, that's usually for three to four months, depending on how well you're doing, obviously. Um, and then you phase up. It gets a little less, you know, once you get into phase two, you're still in two groups, but you go to court every other week. And then, of course, three and four. Um, it gets, you know, a lot easier. They start, you know, giving you a little more room to breathe and to go about, you know, trying to rebuild that life. Um, yeah, so, you know, at almost 40 years old, you know, working on 40, 38, going on 40 at the mm -hmm. time, um, coming out of jail, right? I remember walking out of jail that day. There wasn't anybody waiting for me, Chris, yeah? 
There wasn't, there was not a single soul waiting for me. I had the clothes on my back, the shoes on my feet, and not a nickel in my pocket. Yeah, I had burnt every single bridge that I had ever created in my life with anybody that ever loved me. You know, they really thought that my life had become, you know, unredeemable. You know, most people had given up on me. And, and I let that drive me. Um, so, you know, starting off with, you know, that job at Denny's in the kitchen, you know, making nine bucks an hour at 38 years old. Um, it, that That's a tough pill to swallow. And, mm -hmm. But it was a humility piece, and I, I, I was definitely grateful for it in that moment, believe it or not. I, I started thinking to myself, you know, every way that you feel about life, you need to think the opposite, <laughs> you know? So if a $9 an hour job would normally piss me off, then, you know, have some, have some gratitude that at least you have a job, you know? Um, so, uh, my recovery, I moved into a recovery house, did really well, um, for a little while. And, you know, then the disease came back, bit me in the butt and I relapsed, you know, um, I'd been doing some step work with my sponsor. I began to see who Tim really was in the mirror when I took an honest look at myself and it scared me. You know, you spend a, your entire life as a chameleon, you know, a, a, what do they call them? A shape changer? Shape changer. Yeah, shape, shape changer. Same thing. Depends on whatever lore you're looking at that day. <laughs> yeah, so. Um, whatever universe, yeah. Yeah, I, made, I had, a, uh, you know, three slips while I was in there, and it was on the third one. Um that things had started to get bad because I had found a little crack in the urinalysis testing system, you know, and uh, I, I was using a couple times a week at first, then it turned into, you know, as many times as I could for that week. And, you know, I was getting to the point where the addiction was really taking hold again. And uh, I remember it was a Thursday uh, night, Thursdays when I had my men's process group. And uh, there's this guy, uh, the clinician at the time was uh, Bernard Green. And I got to group. I had gotten high earlier that day. And uh, I got into group. And, you know, when, when I'm getting high, like, I don't think that other people can notice and tell uh, just by the look on my face. Like, I mean, I went through the entire process of, you know, eye drops, you know, uh, clear eyes, went to Walmart, picked up a new pair of reading glasses, you know, made sure all my ducks were in a row, blah, blah, blah. And when I got into group, and they go around, there's about 12 guys in there, and, you know, we go around to start the group, and we just say, like, how we're feeling for the day, 
uh, what we're focused on. And, you know, he went around to a few guys until he got to me. And when he got to me, he looked at me and he said, man, I, I can't even hold it anymore. He's like, I got to tell you, man, you, you look like shit, man. You look terrible. What's going on? And in that moment, I was terrified because it completely caught me off guard. And I knew once he said that, that I would not have the courage to admit that I'd been getting high in front of my peers. Because every, you know, a lot of people thought highly of me at, uh, at, at that time. And, you know, people root you on and, and there's this shame and guilt that washes over, you know, your spirit. And I just couldn't say anything then. So I did, you know, like I had always done in my entire life, and that's deny it. You know, I was going to take it to my grave. Uh, you know, so he didn't give me much crap after that. Uh, we went on with the group and stuff. And after the group, you know, I had decided that I was going to go in there and and tell him the truth. And it wasn't as noble as it may sound <laughs> because part of me was scared that he knew that I was getting high now and that I was eventually going to get caught and it would be twice as bad if I didn't do it this way. Um, and then part of me was also crying out for help as well. Um, and I went in there and I was like, uh, Mr. Green, man, you know, you're right. I've been using He's, you know, I'm like, what do I do? You know, what do I do to get better? And he turned around and looked at me and he's like, you know exactly what to do. Every time I tell you guys something, you always end up doing what the hell you want to do anyway. So why am I even going to tell you? Just do you. I was shot. You know, I, I, you know, if you would have had to pick my jaw up off the floor because here I am thinking I'm being noble and doing the right thing. And when he told me that, something inside of me clicked. And I, and I thought to myself, you know, he's right. I should know what to do, but I don't. For some reason, I need him to direct me what to do. So me and him went back and forth for a little bit. Um, and uh, he said, all right, all right. Call your probation officer. Tell her everything that you just told me. Tell her that you need help. That's what you should do. So I went, you know, the connection with your cell phones is terrible down there. So I couldn't use my cell phone there. Um, and when I got upstairs uh, to the parking lot, I didn't give myself that opportunity to talk myself out of this. Uh, and I called her and I left a message. And from that moment on right there, you know, terror, you know, just welled in my heart. Like I, I thought for sure these people are going to kick me out of drug court. Uh, and I'm going to spend the next four, five, six years in, in prison. And I never wanted to experience that again. Um, you know, so that entire night I didn't sleep very well at all. 
I woke up the next morning terrified and sure enough my phone rang about 10 o'clock in the morning and it was her number and I was terrified and I just stared at my cell phone and I just let it ring until the answer machine picked it up and you know I let her leave me a voicemail yeah, I was scared I didn't I didn't want to face the music you know because in that moment I think part of me was trying to come up with any and every excuse on how to get out of it um, how to do what I've I taught myself to do for so many years and that's you know run from who I am as a person so sure enough she had left me a voicemail and she sounded really happy you know not I wouldn't say happy but she sounded really concerned would be the the right word she sounded super concerned and what can we do to help um, I'm so glad that you called uh, just give me a call back let me know if you can come to court today because like I, this was phase two so I was going to court every other week and um, you know as I sat there and listened to the message and I hung up the phone and I paced back and forth uh, you know in the living room of my apartment Bernard's voice kept coming up in my head, you know, and he kept saying, why am I going to tell you anyway? You're just going to do, you know, what the hell you want to do anyway. And I picked up the phone and I called her. And she said, can you come to court today? And I said, yeah. And she said, okay, what do you think we should do uh, about this? Like, how can we help? And, you know, the attic side, by, by living, uh, you know, and dealing with people on the streets for so long, the manipulation, uh, the lying, the trust, it just wasn't there for me. You know, I'd been led to believe that probation officers want to lock you up, that police officers want to lock you up, that judges want to lock you up. So in that moment, you know, I'm fighting everything I'd ever taught myself of what I really should be doing. I, I'm thinking to myself, I should go on the run. I could probably make it for a little while. Maybe I should move, you know, to California or something like that. And so, uh, yeah, I had to fight those demons in that, in, in that deciding moment. And, um, you know, I agreed with her. We had strategized a plan, but I was still, you know, skeptical. Uh, my sister picked me up after I had the, you know, drug dealer come by and deliver me something so that I could get face the music. And uh, the whole way there, you know, I was kind of wanting to turn around because I knew I was going to get locked up that day. Because in, in drug court, if you fail a drug screen, something like that, you have to do sanctions. So, uh, I'm, it's like a zero tolerance policy. Well, you know, the Henrico Drug Court has a very good take on how they they treat with empathy and and, and compassion. Huh? Nationwide. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it was entirely different than, you know, what I had come to know drug courts to be. Um, you know, and, and I didn't want to go, but when I showed up there, I uh, went upstairs, went in the courtroom, and, 
you know, the judge comes in and I'm, <laughs> you know, literally shaking then, you know, part of, part of me in that moment just wanted to break down and cry, part of me wanted to run, part of me wanted to scream, because I was just so sick and tired uh, of fighting addiction, and happened to suffer the consequences. You know, the addiction leaves you isolated and alone, and when you get caught with, you know, a Schedule 1 or 2 narcotic, a lot of times they put you in an environment where you're entirely alone. It's just concrete, um, you know, cold steel, and it, it, it's terrible, you know, to try to find recovery or help in a situation like that. So all those feelings were just drumming up inside of me when, you know, Judge Marshall calls me up, and, and of course he called me first, Chris. Of course. Yeah, that's, that's the only way it would go. Yeah, of course. You know, so, you know, I was on the green mile, at least what I thought. And um, I get up to the podium and he's like, takes a deep breath and he's like, how are you? And I was like, good, you know, I'm, I'm good. Besides the fact, you know, that I've been getting high. And he goes, yeah, I know. And he goes, I want everybody out here to take a look at Mr. Alexander. And in that moment, of course, I'm thinking... They're going to make an example of me. <laughs> yeah, I'd have thought the same thing. Well, it, and, and if you think about it, you know, throughout uh, the history of, you know, the drug war, that's kind of the way it's been, especially, mm -hmm. you know, probation officers, things like that. They don't usually give you many opportunities at all. There was always that, oh, well, you're screwing up, you're getting high, so let's lock you back up. And... All that does is set you up for failure. And mm -hmm. so when he said, I want you to take a look at Mr. Alexander, this is the epitome of what you should do when you are reaching out for help. He's like, he is not supposed to be here today. He hasn't failed a drug screen. He called his probation officer, told her he needed help. And in that moment, that was another defining moment in my recovery because it, tr it, it proved that everybody is not out to hurt me. You know, and I did start crying in that moment, actually. And it's I, pretty moving. I... <clears throat> You expect one thing, and you got another. It's almost life-saving. Well, not only did I get another, the thing is, is that he empowered me through, you know, his choice of words. Mm -hmm. And not saying that he did a terrible thing by getting high, but he did an amazing thing by telling somebody that he needed to help because he was getting high. He, he didn't, you know, he didn't even bring up, you know, the using part. It was strictly for uh, just one of those moments that was super empowering for me. And when I, you know, they put you in handcuffs at that moment, when, you know, he gave me 
a week in jail and they put me in handcuffs um, you know Bernard wasn't in the courtroom at that time Bernard Green I apologize that's who yeah. he's the clinician and um, but when I walked through that back door with the bailiff you know he was standing right there and he didn't say anything he just smiled as he had this smile right that would light up a room I mean this guy was amazing and I respected him you know so so much man I mean he was a tremendous influence on my path to recovery and it was because of him in that defining moment that he had the courage to call me out in front of everybody and not only that you know he gave me correct information of what I should do and it worked out exactly how he said so the trust there began to build and you know he didn't you know Bernard has passed now he was he ended up becoming the the drug court administrator uh, he was uh, 47 I think at that time and a few months after he took that position he found out he had pancreatic cancer and passed away so uh, you know he will forever be remembered in in my life because from that day on you know uh, I've been clean that's awesome you know and I've always loved public speaking and I've loved telling my story and I try to help people because it's just a part of who I am which is part of the reason why I love that work you know <laughs> so um, you know so from that day forward uh, things begin to fall into place um, a lot of people in recovery would absolutely say it was a spiritual awakening and I would have to agree wholeheartedly it was that point in my life where you know I realized that people don't want to hurt me they just want to see me succeed the only person that has been wanting to hurt me was me and I didn't even know it you know <laughs> yeah so, so I went on to graduate drug court uh, I was still working in a restaurant uh, not making very much money uh, got a job with the McShin Foundation which is in Henrico they're uh, what you call a recovery community organization they have several recovery houses um, a center where you can go and they you know have groups all day long volunteers come in um, they take them you know their participants out to events and stuff and uh, that was a good start for me uh, to start doing video and a little bit of peer recovery coaching through them. Um, I, I went on to do an AmeriCorps um, service, I guess, uh, I forget what they call it, where, where you're an AmeriCorps service member, all right, you, you basically provide the service. You don't really get paid for it. You get a stipend, but it's not much. So I took a big pay cut to do that for the Richmond Area Healthy Futures Project, which revolved around um, the opioid epidemic. Um, uh, after that, um, after I finished that and became an alumni with AmeriCorps, 
uh, I started working at VCAM and I was uh, I became a certified peer recovery coach. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you're, it, you're, here's the crazy yeah. part, Chris. Uh -huh. Here's the here's the absolute crazy part. Um, I work with Clean Slate now. Um, they are um, outpatient um, medicated assisted treatment um, program, but I also work part time for Drug Court, the very same one that I graduated from. Asked me to come back on and work part time with them. I mean, how amazing is that, right? That's 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 like it's a it's really it's really cool. Two, two and, and a half like, years, man. You know, it's definitely not the experience that a lot of people have. It could sure. be their experience, like Chris. It, exactly, and think you, your story will speak to a lot of people, and that that kind of brings me to my next thing. You know, one thing that we haven't seen a lot of the candidates talk about is drug abuse and drug addiction. And you, you've pointed out to me, you, you say um, the drug crisis is because opioid um, epidemic kind of puts out a lot of the other drugs that are also big deals. So what do you think, what kind of plan do you think a, a, a candidate can put out that you think would work? What can we do? Well, we can make everybody else's mm -hmm. experience your experience. Right. So, I, I, first and foremost, some of the things that I've learned um, through my few short years in recovery is that the recovery community, in a lot of instances, not all of them, but in a lot, um, we're not at the table during these discussions and during these decisions. Um, a lot of it is geared around clinical um, studies, research studies, and things like that. But they don't really bring us in on the conversation all the time. Now they have, you know, President Trump with the Opioid Task Force, I believe, um, had one or two um, people in recovery sitting on that council. And, um, which was rare, you know, because, you know, the drug war, the war on drugs been going on for over a hundred years. So, you know, the stigmatization of people, um, you know, that suffer with substance use disorder has been ongoing for, you know, since way before I was born, you know? Yeah, I it definitely got amped up in the 80s with the, the war on drugs, which essentially, instead of mating, making addicts people who need help, it made them into criminals. It's interesting right. that you Oh, well, things. you know, you go even further back to the 20s with uh, uh, Harry Anslinger um, with the marijuana, um, you know, targeting people of color. Um, <clears throat> It, it goes all the way back to then. And he was uh, a federal bureau chief, I believe, or something. And he, that was when it really started. Um, he would come up with slogans like people get psychotic when they smoke marijuana and stuff like that. And that 
it was in those moments, his hatred, I think, uh, for people who use drugs uh, really drove us into the war on drugs, you know, full steam. Uh, because it, it really started back with him, you know. It's interesting. I'd never heard about it put it that way. That, that makes perfect, perfect sense. Yeah. You know, the whole reefer madness thing. Well, yeah, he was he was basically given uh, amnesty to do whatever he wanted, and you know they would plant drugs on on people of color. They plant drugs on hippies at one point, and you know it just it turned uh, us into terrible and bad people. So that way, it made it that much more difficult to reach out for help and trust and believe. That stigma is still, um, you know, every single day I see it in one shape, form, fashion, another. You, I, I do a lot of councils. Um, you know, I sit on the Virginia Association of Recovery Residences, um, reentry councils. Um, I go do community outreach, and one of the things that's always missing is people in recovery. You see all these huge treatment centers, right? Mm -hmm. And there might be one or two maybe people there, but for the most part, they're not relying on, you know, the people from the recovery community. Uh, so one of the things that any president uh, that I would like to see, A, is to start including you know, sober living homes as part of a continuum of care. So if somebody has, you know, Medicare, for instance, or Medicaid, whatever it is they may have, that it would partially pay for them to be able to um, be housed somewhere around other people that are extremely similar to them because it was beneficial to me. I was there for 18 months. Um, and that that's one avenue. But also, you know, we need to get over the fact that we're not sitting at the table, you know. We need same-day service. Um, people balk a lot at um, needle exchanges, um, safe injection sites. Uh, these are things that people fear because of the stigma. So if we don't think the stigma is still alive and well, do we want, you know, 45,000 people overdosing from fentanyl and heroin every single year, although the numbers for the death show somewhere around 70,000. Oh, I was looking at the numbers today um, and one of the emails you sent me. Yeah. And from like 2000 and, what is it, 2006 to 2015, there's a huge jump. Yeah. And then 2016 and 2017, there's another big jump. And like, I, why why was that? Uh, fentanyl. Fentanyl um, is a synthetic opioid. Uh, it's usually manufactured in China or in Mexico. It's extremely cheap to make, but it's also about a hundred times more powerful than heroin. Um, yeah. So that stuff started, you know, once dealers began to see that this stuff was extremely potent and everybody was saying how good it was. Uh, you know, 
you you began to see it more and more and more and it just began flooding our streets and you know uh since i've been in recovery uh, i think 24 people now have passed away uh just people that i know like directly and and about three years now since i started drug court so um one thing uh, that, you know, the same-day service part of it, Chris, is extremely important. Uh, mm-hmm. What exactly is same-day service? So, like, let's say, for instance, right, you have an extremely small window um, to treat somebody, and especially with opioids, because opioids, there is medication in order to treat that to whereas. Uh, cocaine and methamphetamines, uh, there's really not. Uh, so same-day service would be something along the lines of if I need help and I call a treatment center, right? Right now, more than likely, you're looking at a week to two weeks out um, before they can get you in, get your intake done, and get you started on medication. Which is the point, it defeats the purpose. Right. So, um, we have to do better. So, you know, some of the ideas I have is offering incentives uh, for OBOTS, which is this office-based opioid treatment, um, to offer OBOTS and stuff an opportunity at a tax break or incentives if they offer true same-day service because you know you got a lot of actors out there that say yeah we offer same-day service but do you know what that same you come in they do your assessment and then tell you to come back in two weeks that's their loophole so closing that loophole you know yeah so that people can come in when they want to be treated because the windows literally hours I mean you're talking hours here. Could be the difference between saving somebody's life or not. And uh, you know, we live in a capitalist country. Okay, so if people are offering same-day services and you're successful and you're getting some type of government uh, incentive or a tax break or whatever it may be for offering a service and meeting a certain quota of patients, right? Uh, then it would drive other office-based opioid treatment facilities to do the same thing, you know, because if they can't get you in but for two weeks, you know, or a week, then you're pretty much going to be taking business left and right. Uh, So as, you know, people go out and relapse or as people... Uh, you know, because that's what happens a lot of times, uh, from what I can see. Um, you know, people are in and out, they find new places to go, they relapse. Um, yeah, so that's that's my main driving point, I think, Chris, would be the same-day services. Stop worrying about needle exchanges, because the cost of treating hepatitis C and HIV, HIV far outweigh your feelings of uh, a clean needle exchange, uh, saving thousands of lives a year through safe injection sites. Uh, And it sounds, 
even crazy coming out of my mouth just because um, what's been instilled in me my entire life that, you know, drugs are bad and somehow. Um, also, did you get that article? I don't know if I sent that to you, but I meant to. There's an article, like in Boston or in Seattle, Washington or something like that. If you get caught with drugs in, in Washington, the cops are just going to uh, help you find treatment. Boston, that's awesome. Yeah, that's amazing. Washington's, uh, you know, way ahead of the curve when it comes to stuff like that. They, you know, there's not much stigma going on out there as far as uh, people in recovery are concerned. So that's pretty amazing. Uh, yeah. So needle exchanges, that's, it's a way for people who are users to get clean needles, which again, would also help HIV and hepatitis issues. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm just making sure um, I'm on the same page. Well, yeah, you figure how much money, it, you figure how much money it costs for, to treat somebody with HIV, you know, think about how much money it costs to, yeah. On average, right, I think it's about $33,000 a year to house a single person in jail or prison for the year. So you you think about that. You think about methadone for a year, it would be roughly, I don't know, 3,000 bucks. You could even throw in a sober living house, and it would still be cheaper. You could pay for somebody to live in a sober living home for an entire year on methadone or suboxone or on Vivitrol, and it would be far cheaper than it would be for... Like, go to jail. Yeah, jail. And and that was another point that I wanted to talk about was the prison system versus like a rehab clinic or someplace that they can go for uh, somebody who's an addict can go to help get clean as opposed to being stigmatized and thrown in jail as a criminal. Now, should that be a progression we start making instead of immediately saying, hey, you were doing heroin, now you're going to go to jail and it's just going to be a cycle that repeats itself. It's going to be, you know, jail, relapse, jail, rinse, repeat. You know, it'd be amazing that I'd love to see. Um, Do I think people should be penalized for periods of time? Absolutely not for long periods of time. You shouldn't get caught with possession of cocaine or possession of heroin, possession of methamphetamine uh, for your second or third time and end up doing a year, year and a half of your life because you suffer with an illness. Um, But... Do I think jail can be beneficial? Absolutely. I think it gives individuals a breather, at least. Um, And, you know, at least knock down the felony aspect of it to, um, you know, the lightest misdemeanor. And maybe, you know, 10, 15, 20 days in jail tops and transition somebody into you know, the more treatment-like atmosphere. Because like I said, you know, if, if, if I'm using heroin, Chris, and a cop picks me up 
and he finds drugs on me and he's like well I'm just gonna take you to treatment now about four hours in the treatment I'm gone when the coast is clear I'm gone that's where that jail time would be beneficial and very minimal jail time you know uh, yeah. yeah well it would help I guess it would help you get it out of your system and it didn't progress elsewhere to help you actually get clean and stay clean yeah. interesting it is it's definitely a different perspective. It's not something I had heard. Well, I've done jail programs. Jail programs, um, they're good. Uh, you do learn some things, but you're still in an environment to where there is no practice. Um, so instead of building jails, why not invest in, in drug courts and programs of that nature? Why not invest in your recovery community organizations You know that are out on the front lines and in the trenches on a day Lee basis and they get no funding at least in Virginia I know uh, I'm sure some states have come around and started funding uh, recovery community organizations like uh, California Washington uh, I would say a more democratic leaning state yeah it t- tends to be like Oregon Washington California places like that where they have seen to handle it with more empathy than it's a criminal kind of thing. Yeah, because so, you end up with a criminal record and then what happens, right? You get a felony, it hinders you from getting a job, uh, could hinder you from getting an uh, education uh, through federal Pell Grants, loans, uh, things of that nature. And uh, they also, at one point, at least in Virginia, um, they were taking your license. So you just think about the lowest form of oppression that you can think of, and that's pretty much it for the United States of America. I mean, you take somebody that's sick, that's hurt, and that's lonely, and that's probably been through trauma, you throw them in jail, they sit in jail, they get out, you put them back in the environment they were in, they do the same thing over, and it's just this huge, vicious cycle, talk, you know costing tremendous amounts of money to the taxpayer, you know, and to that person's well-being. You know, we got to be smarter, you know. Oh, yeah, 100%. I know we're, not, we're not taking care of each other in any facet of the word. But, no, you're 100% right. It's, it's a vicious cycle. Um, and I think some of that comes with a little bit of confusion from the general public because the general public, like, I didn't know a lot of the stuff that I know now having talking to you and reading some of these articles and one of the things that I thought was that when you use the term opioid epidemic I thought that it was just pretty much all of the drugs but it's only only a part of it like it doesn't cover uh, methamphetamines and our drug issue in this country is is uh, far bigger than just one um, opioid epidemic that's why I've, you know if you've noticed You've heard Tim say uh, the the drug crisis. Do you think flipping the script on things and you know making it a drug crisis and like really educating people, like can we use that to educate the public and really change their minds from seeing people who have addiction as criminals and seeing them as people who actually need our help? Like well, we should be taking care of them. Well, that's what you know. 
that's what the recovery community is for. You know, I don't, I don't mind. Uh, I tell my story to any and everybody out there, and I'll, I'll tell you, nine times out of ten, I get an extremely warm response from the likes of just about everybody that you can think of from one end, one end of the spectrum into the other. So you, um, and I think that that's what it'll come down to. And that's why I think it's such an important part to not rely so heavily on the clinical aspects of things that we need to focus on being more balanced and bringing us into these conversations, letting us have a seat at the table so that, you know, we can help at least direct. Because, yeah, I mean, of course clinical has its benefits and it's great. Um, you know, but who knows better <laughs> than the person that's been through it? Exactly. And they do this stuff with, they say, you know, we want a teacher to be sitting in when we talk about education, but they never mention addicts when they're dealing with opioids and drugs and all of that. And they're the people who know better than anybody else. Like they learn through experience, not reading a book. The reason why you don't hear about it nowadays, uh, Chris, is because, and, and, and even from candidates, I have heard, um, you know, Beto said some things about it. Um, uh, Elizabeth Warren has um, Cory Booker as well. Um, but it's not as prominent as it was at one point because we've kind of hit like this plateau right now. Um, so it's not as important as it was before. And that's kind of what got us in this mess in the first place, is that we end up being reactive and not proactive. All this stuff could have been prevented, you know, at least a good portion of it many, many years ago. Um, and, you know, they kept getting warning after warning uh, from the recovery communities and then they end up in a crisis and they're like, oh shit, what do we do now, right? Should have been listening <laughs> before. <laughs> yeah. One day out. And that's our show for the day, guys. Um, I'd like to thank Tim again for coming on and being with us and bringing us such great information and such great insight. You know, he's a he's a real inspiration. Um, I apologize again. For, we had technical difficulties. I know it seemed abrupt to, to cut off at the end, but that's actually where that part of the conversation um, cut off. So it actually kind of worked out. Um, but, you know, at, at the end of the day, the substance is the most important part. And, you know, that was that was what was important to me. I could re recorded the entire thing. And I chose to have the impact me hearing a lot of that information the first time and just the just the story and how Tim speaks and what he speaks about. He's obviously very, very passionate about it. I didn't want to compromise that. So I hope you guys enjoyed what he had to say. Um, like I said, you know, get out, donate, volunteer, do anything that you can. We got to help this uh, campaign keep going. But until then, I'm Chris and uh, keep on looking ahead to better days. But